The first reading this evening is Jeremiah chapter 30, going to the first verse of chapter 31. It can be found on page 795 of the Church Bibles. That's Jeremiah 30, starting at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me. 
and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Our second reading today continues where we left off at the second verse of Jeremiah chapter 31 on page 796. That's Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when the watchman will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lament lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. 
and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. Now, you'll all know that it is Valentine's Day this week, which gives me an excuse to share my favorite Valentine's poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. Some poems rhyme, this one doesn't. <laughs> I love it as a Valentine's poem, but it doesn't really do what a Valentine's poem is supposed to do, does it? It fails on the one thing that a Valentine's poem is supposed to do. It doesn't express love. What if your experience of God were like that? We've been saying all evening that God is loving, that God is love. But what if it doesn't feel like that? What if it seems like God has forgotten to do the one thing that a God of love is supposed to do, to express his love? I'm aware there'll be lots of us who are hurting this week. Some find Valentine's an especially difficult time of year. Others struggling with job uncertainty or ill health. We might be wondering, has God forgotten to express his love to us? Particularly when a Valentine's culture has got a really messed up view of love. Love that's only earned if you're beautiful enough, intelligent enough, good enough. Most of us will be deeply aware that we are not good enough for God's love. We're aware of our failure to live for him, our failure to obey him. Could he even love us? Does he? If we were to ask that question, well, Jeremiah's audience definitely would be asking it. They'd had decades of Jeremiah teaching them that God was angry with their rebellion against him. And they were about to face the consequences of that rebellion as they collapsed into exile. If they weren't asking the question, does God love me? Then, well, it's basically because they hadn't been listening. And yet, as we saw last week, God had an amazing promise for them. I know the plans I have for you, he said. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
That's the verse that has given us the title for our series in Jeremiah, a future and a hope. But rather than coming up with our own ideas of what those plans look like, we want to see how God explains them. And so we come to the beginning of our passage, chapter 30 and verse 1 on page 795. Here is how God starts to fill out the plans that he has for us. Chapter 30 and verse 1. The words that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Jeremiah 29 is followed by a book, Jeremiah 30 to 33, what some people call the book of consolation. Even as the walls were caving in on Jerusalem and they were ushered into exile, God gave them a book to show them what his plans were and to assure them of his love. And that is the book we're going to look at together over these next few weeks. The first passage doesn't actually get us that far into understanding God's plans. As you can see from the top of the handout, it starts with this series of six poems or or songs sandwiched in between an introduction and a conclusion. And each of those songs begins with the phrase, thus says the Lord. That's why we split the reading the way that we did. But they don't advance our understanding of God's plans that much. They're much more concerned to start by giving us a portrait of God, to show what God is like, to show us that he is loving. And that's essential if we're to understand the plans when we get to them next week. Uh, We won't be able to cover everything in these poems. It was a long reading, wasn't it? But I hope we'll we'll be able to enjoy just dipping our toes into the imagery. And in case at any point you get lost, the verse to come back to is printed at the top of the handouts. Chapter 30 and verse 3. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I'll bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. If you get lost this evening, come back to this commitment from the Lord's, that the other side of exile, beyond their suffering, he was going to restore them. That though their relationship with him seemed to be in tatters, he will draw them back to himself. In short, that God still loves them and he's going to do something about it. Even as the walls of Jerusalem were caving in and they were ushered into exile, God gave them a commitment of his love, an anchor for them to hold. And my hope this evening is to help all of us cling to this same anchor, Uh, whether or not the walls are caving in for you at the moment. You might be doubting that God loves you, or you might doubt that God loves you in the future, or you might just think, it's not that important, I don't really care. Well, wherever you're at, here in Jeremiah 30 and 31 is an anchor. It reminds us how sweet, how significant, How satisfying is God's love. And it's my hope this will become a sort of purple passage for us, one that you'll keep returning to, an anchor and a precious portrait of the God whom we worship. And it starts with point one uh, on the handout. First there, the Lord is profoundly just and loving. Uh, I told you my favorite Valentine's poem, roses are red, violets are blue. Some poems rhyme, this one doesn't. And it's that sort of jarring ending that characterizes the poems of this passage. In the first three, God dwells on these themes of his love and his justice, but he swings jarringly between them. I wonder if you spotted that in the first part of our reading. Uh, The first song declares that God will rescue his people from captivity and they're 
They'll no longer fear their enemies, but be restored to their land. He's loving. But it finishes at the end of verse 11 with the promise that God will by no means leave them unpunished. He's just. Do you see how he jarringly shifts? Or in the second song, which again, we won't go into now. But in that second song, Israel is painted like a terminally ill patient. We're told his pain is incurable. Israel has been punished because their guilt is great. Their sins are flagrant. God is just, we're told. But then he promises healing. He will bring them back into relationship. He will prove that the nations are wrong when they say that nobody loves Zion. God is loving. He's loving and just and just and loving. I wish we had time to go into those songs in more depth. Uh, Please do check check those songs out in your own time and tell me the things that you've enjoyed in them. But so that we have the chance now to enjoy at least one of these songs, we're going to dive into the third song from verse 18. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 30. Verse 18, thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Can you picture it? Jeremiah has previously anticipated the utter destruction of Jerusalem. It will be raised to the ground, but here we see it built again. Cranes and scaffolding are stretched across the wreckage, and the city is restored to its former glory. Uh, But that's not all. Verse 19, out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be few, and I'll make them honored, and they shall not be small. It's so joyful. Can, Can you hear the songs playing in the background and how they're dancing, which I'm not going to do from the pulpit? And he's got this slightly redundant way of describing it. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. He said the same thing kind of four times in a row, except in each pair, the second one sort of emphasizes the point. This tiny, insignificant, vulnerable people will be multiplied and honored. It goes on to say established. They won't be vulnerable anymore. I think verse 21 is particularly exciting. Just look at verse 21. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. Which may not sound that exciting to us, but here is a people who will have languished in exile for 70 years. The only ruler they will know is the one that they've been enslaved to. Moreover, they would have lost all hope in a local king when back in Jeremiah 22, God promised a curse on the whole royal family. We would never have expected this. And yet now, verse 21, their prince is a local man. As he mentioned earlier in the chapter, someone in the line of David. And the rest of verse 21 tells us their relationship. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. God himself invites the prince to draw near into a relationship with him. Can you see why everyone's celebrating? Where previously the whole relationship with God was in tatters and their royal family was nothing and God's promises to David, if you've ever looked at that bit of the Bible, seem to be nowhere. Now we're told it's all coming back. It's all coming together. 
And it's not just the prince, it's all the people. Verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. It's a phrase that's pregnant with significance because it it reminds us of the birth of the nation of Israel back in Exodus. That's when it first came up. And it's come up a couple of times in Jeremiah so far, but now it comes up four times in just three chapters. You shall be my people and I will be your God. God's going to restore God is loving. And just as we are considering his embrace, bam! Behold the storm of the Lord. Verse 23. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. And some of you are shocked because I bashed the lectern. But aren't all of us shocked when we go from that remarkable embrace to this fierce anger, verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he's executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. God is loving. He he will restore his people. But he isn't only loving. He's also just. He doesn't ignore wickedness. He won't overlook evil. He will punish it. He will accomplish the intentions of his mind. And of course, we know that's a good thing when we think about it. Every time we appeal for fairness, whether that's in the law courts or on the football pitch, we show that we care about justice. God cares about justice more. It's why when God revealed his character at the beginning of their relationship in Exodus 34, he described himself as loving and just as gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. From the beginning of their history, God showed himself to be a God who is loving and just. And that's a good thing. But it was bad news for Israel over the course of their history because they constantly found themselves in the tension between these two attributes. Because God is loving, that meant hope. You shall be my people and I will be your gods. But because God is just, it meant judgment. Behold the storm of the Lord. A time and again, they rejected God. They earned his judgment. And then they would return to him and experience his forgiveness. And then they would reject him again and earn his judgment and then return to him again and receive his forgiveness. And it was this sort of vicious circle As Jeremiah was writing, it meant exile. And so as God promises to restore the fortunes of his people, it leaves us with a question. How can the people ever be in a lasting relationship with a just and loving God? What's going to stop them collapsing into exile again? And yet we don't quite get the answer here. The beginning of this book of consolation doesn't explain all of his plans It simply paints a portrait of God as a just and loving God. Even as he promises to restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah, he won't compromise his love or his justice. Both are perfectly true. His love is not limited by his justice, and his justice is not limited by his love. He is profoundly loving and profoundly just at the same time. I wonder, do we hold those two ideas together? 
Do you believe in a God who is both loving and just? Do you celebrate both? Do you see that both are good? I think sometimes we celebrate the justice of God without acknowledging his compassion. We recognize that Jesus' death was a wrath-bearing sacrifice. It was. And we emphasize the justice of God. And that's right. But we forget that God said, you shall be my people and I will be your God. We forget that he's compassionate. Shame on us when we fashion a God who is much less than the God of the Bible. And yet there are other times when we celebrate the love of God while denying that he cares about wickedness and sin. Behold the storm of the Lord, says Jeremiah. There have been times this week when I have been grieved by the idolatry of so-called church leaders who have ripped this idea out of the Bible. Shame on those who fashion a God who is so much less than the God of the Bible. God is insistent in jarring poetry that he is both at the same time. Neither is compromised when he promises to restore his people. And that is hard to understand. End of chapter 30, verse 24. In the latter days, you will understand this. We're not going to understand this properly until we look at the death of Jesus. Until we see Jesus suffering in our place in the wonderful love of God as he took the punishment we deserve. We'll think more about that next week. But even now, if we've got any question on how this is going to work out, he tells us in 31 verse 1, 31 verse 1, at that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. He will be their God and they shall be his people. He will restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah. God is just and loving, loving and just. It's a reality that spelt trouble for the nation of Israel in their history. But now God is promising to restore their fortunes without compromising either. It's going to be okay. And notice it's going to be okay for all of them. He will be the God of all the clans of Israel. Which takes us to our second point. The Lord is passionately committed to all of his people. The Lord is passionately committed to all of his people. And it's that inclusive idea that we Uh, with that inclusive idea that we move into the second half of the passage. And God emphasizes the wide embrace of his promise. And it's worth realizing how stunning that is. For most of this book, Jeremiah has been speaking to the kingdom of Judah about their exile. For him to offer them a return from exile is already stunning. But Judah, as you can see from the cartoon on the handouts, was the southern part of the larger kingdom of Israel. A kingdom that had split about 350 years before into two parts. A northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jeremiah is. But when God talks about all the clans of Israel, he's including that northern kingdom, the one that is sometimes called Samaria or Ephraim. A kingdom that had abandoned God so comprehensively, they had already been sent into exile 100 years before. A kingdom that were destroyed so comprehensively, we thought they were never coming back. When God says, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people, 
It's a promise that beyond exile, God will bring restoration, not just for Judah, but for all the clans of Israel. He's enfolding into his promises a nation that we thought was dead and buried. Our songs 4 and 5, verses 2 to 14, they're filled with an extraordinary expression of God's commitment to all of his people. He remembers his promises to them, and he speaks of his everlasting love, of his continuing faithfulness toward them. He's got an enduring commitment to the nation, to all of it, to the southern kingdom heading into exile, and to the northern kingdom, which we thought was gone forever. It's an extraordinary promise, but it comes into its own when we reach the final song, verse six, uh, song six, uh, verse 15, chapter 31, verse 15, which is where we're going to linger for a little bit longer. Chapter 31, verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob, the ancestor of a significant portion of that northern kingdom. If you like, you can think of her as the mother of Israel. She was buried in Ramah, but from her resting place, we picture the spirit of Rachel grieving over her descendants. Here is Israel's mum, her children taken from their home and carried off into exile. And you can hear her screaming. She's mourning. They are no more. But God has an amazing promise. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. You can stop crying because everything's about to change. You can stop weeping because they're coming back. Verse 18 flicks across to Ephraim, a personification of this northern kingdom. They were sent off into exile because of their rebellion against God. But here we overhear this personification coming to his senses. Verse 18, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Can you hear the the remorse in his voice? How cut up he is about the way that he ignored God's dealings in the past. He slaps his thigh in grief. He's realizing his guilt and his appeal is to the Lord, take me back, bring me back that I may be restored. And yet the emotional climax of this song comes from God himself. And we picture God looking on at this wayward child and listening in. And then he speaks, verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? Uh, That's not a question, it's recognition. He is God's dear son. He is God's darling child. And he goes on, for as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. 
You can't help but think of the parable of the prodigal son, those of us who know it from Luke, with the child realizing his guilt and regretting his actions. But it is the father where you see the emotional climax, yearning for his son. Do you see how committed God is to his people? And the heading of this point was, in, was just going to be that. The Lord is committed to all his people. But that sells it short, doesn't it? He is passionately committed to all his people. I am denied about using that word passionately because there's an important aspect of Christian teaching called the impassibility of God. The idea that God is not affected by emotions the way that we are. As the book of James puts it later in the Bible, with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. That is that God is not subject to emotional instability the way that we are as humans. As it is put classically, he is without passions. That's an important Christian teaching because often we can make out God to be just like us in every way. And so when we hear that he is like a husband, as we read together earlier and as we'll see next week, we import into our ideas of God everything we know from human husbands. No, we need to let God's revelation of himself and his word govern how we view him. But let's keep letting God's revelation of his wo- himself in his word govern how we view him. When we hear the phrase without passions, we can think that God isn't emotional at all. And yet here he has chosen to reveal himself using extremely emotional language. My heart yearns for him. It's powerful, emotionally rich language. It's why our final hymn will speak of God's love as excelling all other loves. Andrew Sheed, whose work on Jeremiah I found deeply helpful, uh, translates that line this way. I moan in my gut for him. Another book which has a whole chapter on just this verse uh, describes uh, the idea as being like this, uh, being restless or agitated or even growling or roaring or being boisterous or turbulent. Uh, He goes on, do you see what God is revealing about himself, what he is insisting on? His capacious, which is a posh word for roomy, uh, his roomy affections for his own are not threatened by their fickleness because pouring out of his heart is the turbulence of divine longing. In other words, even while our hearts spew out sin, God's heart is roaring for us. In fact, that's how the word is normally translated elsewhere in Jeremiah. If you look across the page at verse 35, you'll read of the waves roaring. It's the same word. God's heart roars for his people. And it is with that roaring heart that God promises they will return. Chapter 31, verse 21. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the roads by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? Their terrifying journey into exile turns into a return ticket, tracing its route back along the same track, the same way by which they went. And we still don't know why this time will be different. Israel's history was this vicious circle of rebellion and repentance, judgment and forgiveness. We still don't know how God will restore their fortunes without them ending up in exile again. 
We're given this faint whisper of a clue at the end of that sixth song. 31 verse 22. For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. It's a whisper of a clue. A new thing. We're told that we need a new thing. But it's a weird one, isn't it? There's a baffling verse. As Andrew Sheed puts it, it's intentionally elusive. It's deliberately hard to understand. We're going to need to see what it means next week. But until we get to next week, we won't know how or why this time will be different. But we do know that this time will be different. Without denying his love and without denying his justice, the Lord is passionately committed to all of his people. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. He still loves them, and he's going to do something about it. And that's not just a promise to Israel and to Judah. There was a partial fulfillment in the 6th century BC as the people returned from exile. But as we said last week, God's promises are the gift that keep on giving. There was far more yet to come. As we'll see more clearly next week, the promise of these chapters is ultimately realized in the Lord Jesus. His plan to restore the fortunes of his people is what he has accomplished in the gospel, in Jesus' death on our behalf, on the new covenant that he establishes. Please make sure you come back next week so we can enjoy that together. But I mention it now because the New Testament is crystal clear. The doors of this promise are not just open to Israel and Judah. They're open to the world. When Jeremiah says that the just and loving God is passionately committed to all his people, he means that he is passionately committed to you. And yet it's not automatic. It's not a promise that everyone in the world will be saved. It's a promise that anyone in the world can be saved. And so it is a promise that offers us an invitation. Verse 21, return, return. How long will you waver? It's an invitation to every one of us, even those who think that they are barred from entry, even those who think that they are too far gone. Are you further gone than Ephraim? that wayward child of a nation who had disappeared off into exile, thought never to return. Here is what God promised to him. As often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. And so he promises to you. My heart roars for you. I will surely have mercy on you. Return, return. How long will you waver? The doors of that promise are open to all of us. And so whatever your circumstances, whatever you are going through at the moment, don't let them determine your view of God. When you see the Valentine's posters this week and the empty, vacuous substitute for love that this world idolizes and puts on cards, the silly poetry that you find there, Be reminded of God's book to you, his own self-revelation, a kind of poetic self-portrait. Whether it feels like the walls of your life are about to cave in, or you've never doubted God's love in your life, did you realize that he's like this? 
sure, he might be without passions, but he's not without emotion. He is the God who is loving and just, just and loving, and his heart roars for you, and he will have mercy on you if only you'd come to him. Are you going to read this book? Are you going to enjoy these poems? Are you going to let them draw you in? Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks to us and who tells us what you are like. Thank you so much for giving us these great poems in Jeremiah. And we pray that we would keep coming back to them, that they would be a passage for which we're so grateful and which would help us to see you more clearly. We pray that we would be those who uphold these great attributes of your character without compromise and who delight to know how passionate you feel about us. We pray that we would be thrilled to come back to these verses again and again and that they might draw us to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.